Well, this is my new favorite t-shirt, and I know some of you won't be able to see it, so I'm going to read it to you. It says, persist like Elizabeth, inspire like Malala, speak like Maya, influence like Sonia, defy like Rosa, fight like Hillary, empower like Gloria, and focus like Michelle. If my mom was here tonight, this is the t-shirt she would be wearing. In 1952, I was in hiding from the FBI, and I was living underground. But I don't really remember any of those details because I was quietly tucked into my mother's womb. My parents, they were pregnant with me, and they were on the run from the FBI. I was part of the Red Scare, which was a time during the McCarthy era when there was a witch hunt for people who they believed were threats to American democracy. And the FBI had this list, and on this list were names of people who were perceived to be communists or leftists, and my parents' names were on that list, and they were being hunted. Well, I had, I think, I would imagine, a wild nine-month ride. Because my parents changed their names, they left New York City, and they moved to the countryside, and they worked for the underground newspaper. So for me, I believe that was probably my first lesson in life about standing up for what you believe in. Well, the day I was born, we were at Brooklyn, New York, in the hospital, and my parents were so excited because I was their first daughter. And I think if they could have, they would have made little baby birth announcement buttons and walked out into the waiting room and passed them out, and they would have said, another fighter born. Because my mom, there was no way in hell my mom would have ever put one of those pink ribbons on my head or like a pink diaper. I was a red diaper baby, which meant I was the daughter of uh, communists. And I loved both my parents so much. They were Jewish, they were generous, and they fought for social justice their entire lives. And when I was, well, let me just say my mom was my mentor and my leader. She taught me how to stand up for myself, and most of her life she stood in front of me, and she stood in front of many other people. Well, when I was a young girl, I looked out at my own world, and I saw a lot of despair. I grew up in Compton, California, and I was really a tough kid, but I was also this emotional sponge, and I would just feel and see all the emotions and all of the hatred and all of the despair around me. I'd walk out of my house, or I'd walk around the school neighborhood, I'd see these little kids who parents couldn't take care of them. And then I realized very early in life that my white family had so many more opportunities and privileges than my black friends. And as I walked around, I would hear all these name-calling. And I was called white girl, Jew face, big nose. But my black friends were called even worse names. They were called the N-word. They were called your mama this, your mama that, and my Chicano friends were called lazy, dirty, spick. And I thought to myself, oh my God, how are we all going to live together? And that is what I saw. 
But see, my mom didn't see that. She saw something different because her whole life, she was already fighting against racism, sexism, all the isms. But what she saw was what the public school was doing to me, and she didn't like it. So I entered school with this big attitude. I was like, yes, I love school. I'm going to be in every play, every activity. I'm going to learn. And I was ready to do it. And there I found myself in the Christmas play. So being a little Jewish girl, I, my part in the play was being a little baby angel in the Jesus manger scene. <laughs> and I had a little white robe on and a little aluminum halo and I had my hands like this on my knees. And I was supposed to pray for about 15 minutes. Well, I've never prayed in my life because my parents are atheists. And this form wasn't part of my family. Well, my parents came to play that night, and they were devastated. They could not believe that their Jewish daughter was in the manger scene. Well... Every year, the teachers would always ask me, because I was Jewish, if I would come teach everybody about Hanukkah. And I was like, far out, cool, I'm going to be like a religious teacher, and I'm going to be in my classroom. So I would come to school with the menorah in my bag, and I would stand up and talk about Hanukkah. Well, I kind of caught on early that my mom, if I told her anything I didn't like, she probably would do something about it. So there were two things in school I hated. One was that after lunch, you had to eat everything on your plate if you wanted to go to recess. And I couldn't believe it. You had to raise your hand. The teacher would come over. She'd look at your plate, and then she'd dismiss you. And I thought, no way. That's, like, totally unfair. I don't even have to do this at home. And then the other thing I saw was why were the girls always wearing dresses? It was freezing. Why couldn't we wear pants? Well, I went home, and my mom hit the roof. And she's like, watch this. So she came down to this... She came down to this school, and she would meet with the administrators, the teachers, and she would just raise hell. Needless to say, I was never, ever again the baby angel in the Christmas play. And we were even lucky there was still going to be a Christmas play. Because according to my mom, that was not okay. And then my mom said to my teachers, if you want to teach diversity in this classroom, will you go learn about Hanukkah? But do not ask my Jewish daughter to be the token. And I think the best thing that came out of those discussions was, I never, ever got, had to eat again shredded raisins and carrots or beets. I got to go to recess when I felt like I was full and I wanted to go play. So that was the mom I had, and that was who I thought all the moms were. But then I looked around and I realized, oh my God, nobody else has a mom like I have. My mom was really a different kind of mom. She didn't do hair. She didn't do fashion. She didn't do... shopping, and she barely did the kitchen. I was really lucky we had food to eat because my mom did not value any of those roles. Well, what my mom did value, of course, was fighting for social justice, but she had a different fashion statement, and what she did was she sent the messages about the world and the horrific situations out into the world by what she wore. And my mom wore a baseball cap 
almost every single day of her life that said like, liberal, fight on, badass. She wore t-shirts that had so many different sayings on, um, ban the bomb, workers unite, and then buttons. She always had buttons on for every election and for every ballot measure. So I saw my mom dress like that my entire life, and one day my sister and I were cuddled in the room where probably in high school my sister said, do you ever wish that our mom looked different? Do you ever wish just like for one day she'd take the T-shirt off? And I said to myself, and I thought, you know, and I said, you know, I, I do. I, once in a while I just wish that my mom would wear like an apron and a hairnet. <laughs> and she would like cook maybe a roast beef or something. But that wasn't who my mom was. And she never was like that. So when I was 21, I was ready to go on my own. I had all the skills from these radical parents had it in my own life. I moved up to Oregon. I got married. I started um, raising my three adopted kids. And a few years later, I got one of the most saddest, horrible phone calls I've ever gotten, which was my parents called to tell me they were getting divorced. And I was just so upset because they were a model for me, their passion, their politics, their community. I just thought, what happened? I never saw it coming. Well, my mom moved out of the house. She was really relieved and she was really happy. And she moved into her own apartment. She had never lived by herself ever. And my dad was home and he was devastated. And for the next 10 years, my mom had kind of a mystery life. She was the director of a Jewish center. I knew, I knew what she was doing work-wise. I saw her, but she had a lot of friends. But her life just was kind of a mystery. Like, what was my mom doing? Well, I was trying to focus on my own life because I was having a little bit of a mystery life too, which was I had ended my marriage and I fell in love with my partner, Kathleen. And I was like so excited. I was just like, oh my God, I have found home and we finished raising my daughter. Well, By the time my mom was in her late 60s, I got the second call that has actually been the second most shocking call on the phone I've ever gotten. And it was my mom, and she was very serious. And I thought she was going to tell me she had cancer. But no, she didn't have cancer. What she told me was that, Ellen, I have met a woman, I have fallen in love, and I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life. I'm a lesbian. And I was like, oh, my God, really? I was just like, oh, my God, my mom's a dyke. Oh. I was like, my mom's crossed over to the other side. And I was so shocked because my mom, in my mind, was straight. She was supposed to be with my dad. And that's what I was really hoping she'd say. But no, I now had a mom who was not only radical, leftist, rebellious, but now she was a lesbian too. And I hung up the phone and I said to Kathleen, you will never believe this, but my mom just called and she has fallen in love with a woman and she's a lesbian. And Kathleen had this big smile on her face. She was like really happy about it. And I looked at her and I heard myself saying, we will never double date with my mother. (laughs) 
I was just like, that's it, no way. Well, a few months later, I know, it, it, it was true. I never wanted to double date with her, ever. A few months later, I met her partner, and later I'm going to call her partner PETA, which stands for pain in the ass. And she really was a pain in the ass. So when I first met PETA, When I first met PETA, I kind of liked her. She had really good politics, she was pretty funny, and she made my mom so happy. But when Kathleen met PETA, she saw something different. She thought she was entitled, she thought she was a narcissist, and she felt really uneasy about her. Well, the next few years, as I got to know PETA and my mom in this relationship, I got started to see things that really disturbed me. Like, Peter was me, me, me. Everything was about her, what she wanted, what she needed, what she believed. Well, my mom was other, other, other. Peter also treated people like they were third-class citizens, like the staff she had, janitors, waiters. She was rude. She was condescending. And my mom, her whole life was supporting the working class people in consensus base. But the really odd thing about PETA was she never paid for one bill. She never paid for dinners. She never paid for movies. She never paid for a parking meter and a vacation, and my mom paid for her entire life, including her mortgage. And I was thinking, what is my mom thinking? This woman is the opposite of her. And I would talk to my mom about it openly, and my mom would say, Ellen, Peter just was raised a different way than we were, and she's going to change, and you just have to take the good with the bad. And I was like, oh, wow. And I would leave there just really perplexed. Well, as the years went by, my mom and Peter moved up north, which scared the hell out of me because my mom left her Jewish community, all her volunteer jobs. She was retired, and Peter went where her family was. She had a full-time job and of quite a big life. And I was scared inside, like, what's going to happen to my mom? And the rules in that house got tighter and tighter, Rules like my mom could only eat healthy food. My mom could only use the computer at certain hours. If my mom dropped anything on the floor, Peter would start yelling, and it would be this tone of shaming. And then there were secrets about money. And as I visited and saw this, I started to watch my mom change. And I started to see that her voice was getting tired of arguing with Peta. And it was such a new version of my mom because I had never known this part of her. Well, as I started talking to her on the phone, I could hear this desperation in her voice and I could tell she didn't want to burden me. And I would try to say, you know, you could come to Oregon. You could be with us. And my mom was like, no, I'm in my late 70s and it's okay. I'll be fine. Well, it wasn't okay with me because I wasn't fine about it. So I flew down to California one more time to try to figure out how to get her to come with me. And when I walked in that house, Peter was gone. My mom was sitting by a computer playing solitaire. And she had been playing solitaire for seven hours. 
and that was her new life. No friends, no passion, solid, solitaire. I noticed that my mom was starting to show signs of dementia. She was lost. She was lonely. And as I walked around her house into her bedroom, I looked down at this desk, and I saw her checkbook, and I saw these files. And I picked up her checkbook, and I looked at it. Well, PETA's name was on every single account my mom had. And there were thousands of dollars being written to PETA. My mom was not only paying for PETA's life, but she was also giving her money. PETA's checkbook, which I looked at, was just also in the file, had $200,000 in it. Well, PETA didn't even have a pension. And I thought, wow, my, mom, my mom's last bit of her money is in PETA's hands. Who will take care of my mom? And then I saw a piece of paper in a file, and it was PETA's will. And it said in handwritten capital letters, if I die first, Rhoda Wolfson, which is my mom, will get nothing. And, oh, I felt it deeply, and I realized elder abuse. My mom is in a really dangerous situation. Well, I went home. And I called my sister, and I felt that fire, the same fire my mom had in elementary school with me. Like, no way is my mom going to end her life like this. I flew there, and I pretended to be the companion of my mom for the weekend so Peter could go away and play cards and be on her own. And my sister and I, at, my mom was 87, kidnapped my mom. And, yay, I, yeah, exactly. My sister went into the living room with my mom and put on Judy Garland videos and played Scrabble with her. I went into her bedroom, packed up her entire life in one suitcase. I took 15, 20 huge garbage bags of my mom's entire life to the Goodwill. I couldn't tell my mom I was going to kidnap her because... She was so afraid of PETA that I was afraid that she would tell her. PETA called every few hours checking in on us. And I would lie. I would say, oh, we're fine. We're taking a walk. My mom's taking a nap. But in my heart, my, it, my heart was beating so fast. I could see my mom watching me in the room and packing her room, cleaning her room. And there was this big trust in those eyes of hers she felt trusting of me. So the next day, I booked a flight to Portland for my mom and I. I walked out to the living room. My sister, we sat down. I looked at my mom and I said, Mom, I really want you to come to Oregon. I want you to be where you're safe and where you're loved. And Kathleen and I are going to take care of you. She looked at me and she said, Okay. I'm going to go on an adventure with you. We took a deep breath. We put her in the car, and my sister drove us to the Oakland airport. The whole time I was looking in the rearview mirror for PETA, I had now become afraid of PETA myself. I turned my phone off so PETA could never call. We got on that airplane, and as that airplane took off, I had my arms wrapped around my mom, and I thought, I wonder what happened to the mentor, the protector, and the fighter. I wonder what happened to 
my mom, who used her power to change my world and change the world of many other people. She was powerless to change her own world. And if I could have, I would have pinned a button on each of us that said, love in action. My mom died three years later, but the power she put into the world now lives within me.